Welcome to the first ever Hughes Marino podcast. Feels really good to say that. This is a podcast where we talk about corporate real estate and we do it hopefully in a very not boring way. I'm one of your four hosts. My name is Tucker Hughes. I'm joined by three of my senior partners at Hughes Marino, Owen Rice, John Jarvis, and Brian Connolly. Between the four of us, we advise literally thousands of companies on their corporate real estate strategy negotiations all around the world. I based in Los Angeles, Owen is in Seattle, John is in San Diego, and Brian's in Boston. Every week, there's so much we talk about internally as a team that's super relevant to other people in commercial real estate and also to the companies that we consult for. So we're creating a podcast to take those private internal conversations and make them public. Our goal is to share what's really happening from four people who are on the ground and collectively working on billions of dollars corporate real estate projects at a time. What's newsworthy? Why is it happening? What's the real story without any massaging of the truth or any lost in translation with reporters that don't do this every day? So with that having been said, let's jump into episode one. Today, we're covering work from home and by extension of that, what the impact on the office market has been and will be in the future. Let's start with where we are today, though. Owen, why don't you lead us off with some background on what's happening out there? Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's crazy out there. Um, and when I say crazy, what I mean by that is like there's no one size fits all solution to the corporate office tenant. Uh, we've got some that went remote during the pandemic that have yet to come back and may never come back. Uh, we have some that went remote and now are coming back um, with, an, with a renewed vigor of being together as a team. And we have some kind of embracing the hybrid uh, plan. Um, most recently, you may have heard that you know Snap announced that they're bringing everybody back uh, in February, one of the first big tech companies to claim so. They have about 40 offices worldwide. Um, so it remains to be seen kind of where we, the pendulum settles. Um, but the reality is what that has done, in addition to what we might be in with this recession, is that there's a lot of availability. Um, and it's a really fun time for those that do what I do and those and my panelists here to represent tenants because the terms that we're achieving on behalf of our clients is, is truly tremendous. Uh, and that's really what's kind of been the fallout of the pandemic. And I think 2023 is going to be a really exciting year in terms of like who comes back and at what levels and also the terms that we're able to achieve on behalf of our clients. This is solid. <laughs> solid. There we go. There we go. We'll, t- we'll take it. Brian, what do you think? So it's interesting. This we get a lot to talk about uh, two different ways, right? So Owen, 100% excited to be here. But the markets are, you know, John, you might have a third recession or a third downturn in you, but I've seen two. This is my third. So maybe you've seen four. But, you know, after the dot-com crash, it, there was a lot of great opportunity, but there wasn't a lot of demand in the markets. After the great financial crisis, it really didn't impact. It was more of an ownership and financing side, so it didn't impact the office markets. Right now, we're I'm seeing an opportunity where, you know, there's there's it's going to take some time to work through the system because owners are not there yet in terms of the softening of the market. But we're, as a tenant rep broker, I can't remember an opportunity where the demand is still pretty strong, but it's different, and a market that is just fundamentally just ripe for tenants to achieve better results than they've ever achieved in my career. So it's really exciting times uh, as a broker, it really is. Yeah, you, you called me out on it, I did. I started in this industry in the 80s, so I guess I'm the only one that remembers survived till 95. But uh, <laughs> here we go again. The uh, Here's what I'll say about where we are today. It's crazy to think that 2023 will actually be the fourth year 
of dealing with this, right? We've been three years in this quasi pandemic mode. And interesting to note that like these long-term leases give these landlords some cover from short-term market impacts. But give it enough time and all these leases are starting to roll and companies are forced to make decisions. So many companies didn't make decisions early on and now the lease is coming up. Time to make a call. We'll talk about what they're doing, but you know, people are starting to make decisions because of that. Yeah, well said. So let's let's talk a little bit more specifically about work from home. Like what's what's going on? What are we what are our clients doing? What are the most cutting edge companies doing? What are the majority of people doing? How does it vary by geography? Uh, but before we jump into that, I just want to I want to frame this a little bit. So the first office building was built in 1726 in England, right? So we have almost 300 consecutive years of people working in offices that has just been briefly abbreviated by COVID, right? Kind of hard to believe that you can have a three century streak that is interrupted by just a couple of years and completely change habits of people on a long-term permanent basis. On a short-term basis, sure. Uh, I don't mean to color the conversation in advance of you know, hearing what you all think, but I'd love your thoughts on what are companies doing now? What do you expect that they're going to do in the future as it relates to work from home? I, I thought, I, mean, I know I'm new here, but I thought John was the professor. Not you, Tucker. <laughs> John, 300 the years of being in office buildings. That sounds like an intro of a, you know, economics 101 class or something right there. I love John's it. the John's the, uh, the the real estate professor. I'm the history professor around here. Got it. It's going to sound even <laughs> okay. more professorial. I know where you're going with that. You're going to be talking about a reversion to the mean. And uh, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. But let's start with the short term. and. Remember the early days of the pandemic. I mean, it's remarkable what we all were able to do, right? I mean, pivot to work from home, figure out a work from home office, uh, harder for some people than others, people, kids at home. Um, and what people were able to do in the short term is just nothing short of remarkable. Also interesting to note, the number of conversations I've had with clients and CFOs and CEOs who have said, pre-pandemic, I was not a remote work ban. I wouldn't have allowed it at my firm. I didn't believe in it, that it could, the productivity could happen. Now I have to admit, I'm surprised. I'm utterly surprised by how well it's worked and how well it's working. Now they all, they all want to get their teams back, but they've had to admit that this remote working can work, especially in the short term. That's different from the long term. What we've done in the short term doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. And that's the transition I, I think we're in today. Well, let me comment on that because I, I am by and large a big promoter of being in the office, right? I'm in the office five days a week, sometimes six, um, and I get more done in the office. I collaborate with my team more and I solve bigger problems. But I think and I've, I've kind of moved along this pendulum in my own thinking for like how to advise our clients through the pandemic and, and now on the, on, on the ons or you know, coming out of it. Here's my thought. I was on a call with... Um, and a reservation agent, I was changing my flight uh, the other day, and I won't say the airlines, but I asked her on the phone, are you at home or are you at an office? And she said, I'm at home. And I said, hey, before I let you go, can you might have asked me a quick question. I said, what's it like working from home? Are, did your entire company move reservations to home? And she said, yes, we have call centers in the, these three major U.S. cities. And she's like, you know, it's okay. I, I don't mind um, not having a commute to and from the call center. But she's like, I get a little stir crazy. 
and I kind of miss those that I, I was I used to work around. Now, I, I assume she was probably extroverted, therefore she likes being around people. But I think that was an interesting point. Like being at home, getting a little stir crazy. Um, I think we all dealt with that, at least myself. But as re- relates to her role, like as companies start to think about office space, does she need to be in the office? I don't know. I mean, she answers phone calls and helps people like me with our travel plans and so forth. And she's really not solving, you know, complex problems like an engineer would at a technology company or a hardware company. And so by and large, in my opinion, if you're servicing customers and you're working on products or solutions that require greater thinking and, you know, solving complex problems, you got to be together. It's really, really hard. And I'm, I know this for a fact because I live it every day and we solve really hard problems for our clients. It's hard to do it over Zoom in a phone call. And there's a barrier to entry when you have to get on a call or log somebody up on Zoom to have a conversation. And then it's just like, it's like this false reality where you're looking at a screen and it's not, you don't get the, the actual, um, you can't just run to the whiteboard and start, you know, jotting down ideas. Um, and so I think what I've seen, at least with my clients, is those that are working on really hard problems or trying to solve solutions for customers that involve a lot of creative thinking, they're together. And they're accelerating by being together again. And they're realizing what they missed being remote. Now, that said, there are clients of ours that have people that are in roles that are critical, but not critical in terms of being together because they're solving a problem or they're delivering a solution for their their company that doesn't need to be amongst others. And for those, I think, is it okay to give them an opportunity to work from home? Sure, if that works for your culture. I mean, I don't know how creative or decreative that might be to a company culture, but sure, that works. And maybe some want to do it. I also have customers that tell me that their people work in an apartment and maybe their spouse is working from home and they don't have room. They, they aren't afforded a home office like, you know, the four of us are um, in a house. And so I think it's like a, there's not a one size fits all solution, but I think the notion that like some companies that are working on really hard things can all be fully remote. It's just, it's a false reality. I don't think it's going to work long term. Um, and I, I'll stick by that um, as evidenced by conversations I've had with dozens of CEOs um, in those roles. Yeah, I, I don't think that anyone has ever really disputed that in person and generally just richer forms of communication and richer mediums to interact are always better for complex problems, always better for collaboration. I think, uh, well, I agree with you, Owen, there's this whole other side of the, of the argument saying people are more productive at home. They don't have a commute. They're less yep. distracted. They can go take a quick little break in the day. They can, you know, take care of personal tasks and chores during the day. They end up working more hours because they hop up and make a quick sandwich and eat it at their desk. So what do, what do you say to those people that genuinely believe that it's a lot more productive to have people working at home? And maybe that increased productivity that they think that they're getting is worth the decreases in collaboration. Yeah, I, I would tell you that uh, just to jump in that these are these issues and these discussions are not COVID issues. I mean, they, companies have been dealing with remote workforce, uh, bifurcated workforce. Like if you think of Snap or you think of Meta or you think of some of my clients, they have 30, 40, 50, hundreds of offices. Teams are they're hiring people on teams well before COVID across multiple locations. So bringing people into the office and getting people to work well together is a issue that they've had well before in in these professional companies, right? It's not a one-to-one relationship to office and work or anymore. It is teams are teams are all over the globe. 
and how do you get those people to be productive is not a issue. The issue I think is, um, the issue is what is the why companies think they're better together. It doesn't necessarily mean a team is better together, but companies are better together. And I had a client, a very senior real estate director at a, at a technology company that the whole world knows it's a cutting edge company. And, and she, and she, and she had said to me, what I'm not hearing in the marketplace is companies articulate why they want people. Why are we better together? Why do we want you to come to the office? We hear a lot about all the amenities we give people, all these amenities to come back, free food, better office space, uh, flexible schedules, but we want you in the office. Why? Why, why are we better? Why, why do you think? I think I'm more productive at home, but why do you think I'm better here? She said, and it's a very interesting perspective because you really haven't heard, you haven't heard it and you haven't seen it. It's all anecdotal. Um, so I thought that was a good, a good segue into my thought on why companies are better. What? It, and it, it, it feeds back to what is going on in the market right now. Companies are transitioning and they're changing and there's a lot of change within companies. Layoffs are happening. Their companies are downsizing. Growth isn't there anymore. Why is it better to be in the office? Because there is a location bias. Location bias is real. You need your boss, your boss's boss, to know who you are. Or you could be in the next round of layoffs, right? So if there's a reason for a young, smart worker to be in the office, it's to get to know the people around you so you have a job if there is some sort of a uh, uh, a layoff at your company. Well, Tucker, to answer your question as to like why or what would I say to those people that say they're more productive at home, I'd say great. Embrace it. But, but make sure you're doing things to um, both maintain and enhance your culture uh, despite not being together. And so I've got a good friend of mine, leads a wildly successful technology firm. They're 100% remote. But every single quarter, he spends a tremendous amount of money bringing their team of 75 together for a three-day offsite where they all fly into a different city each time. And it's very, very intense intentional conversations that's very scheduled and structured. It's not a boondoggle where they're just hanging out and, you know, having fun for three days. Um, and that works for them. And so there are cases where remote work can be just fine. But my only question to someone that says they're going to do that is what are you then going to do to make sure you actually have a culture and that people know one another. And so that when you depart from that retreat and you're separated by for another 90 days, there's, there's some sort of connection that binds you together. So I want to go back to something that Brian was saying. He's sure. talking about how for that young, smart worker that is trying to have job security, trying to get promoted, that you have to be in the office. And that's that's really the perspective of somebody that doesn't want to go in, a reason that they should go in. Why do you think your your clients actually want people to go back? Like, what, what are they getting by their people returning? Like, that's the conversation that I feel like people aren't talking very much about. Like, why do companies want their people back so badly? That's a great, and that's exactly feeds back to what I was saying. Like, what's the why? A lot of people want to do better for your company. They just haven't articulated what what's so important about being there. When they think they you know they're at home, they're more efficient. They get they get all their work done. Their you know their 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 productivity they believe is higher, but the company is still fighting it. Once in the office, and no one's really articulated why. And and it's why do I think I think because long term companies believe that people stay longer at the company. Uh, I, re- I remember a, it was a consulting firm I had as a client years ago, and they were having a real issue with people staying at the company because 
they were never in the office. They were always at their at their client sites. And the people started realizing that it wasn't the clients, it wasn't their company that they were tied to, it was their clients. And they could work for anyone. It was the job that they loved. It wasn't the company. So they would they would literally trade jobs for high more money, more money, and attrition was through the roof. So they started forcing people on one day a week back to the office on Fridays. They used to have Fridays in the office with their colleagues, with their leaders, with the company to try to keep people from from not having any ties back to the firm that they worked for rather than just their clients, right? And I think that's one is attrition. Totally. Let me take, let me take a shot at this. Yeah, go for it, John. Because I think uh, the why, as to why we, I believe the marketplace will produce a winner. I believe that culture, in words of Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. A team and a company with a strong company culture is going to win in a competitive marketplace. So as such, over time, the folks that are together spending time, Owen and your team in Seattle, seeing each other and real-time problem solving day in and day out makes you super tight as a team. You've got a great culture. You're going to win in the competitive marketplace. And that your competitors will either have to adopt or go away. So I love the idea that it's going to be a market-driven solution. I happen to believe that culture is a key. Like here, try this. Try Googling how to develop a strong company culture for a remote team and look at the things you get. They're just, you know, awful. Virtual water cooler recommendation, conversation starters, just brutal. People will come back together because that's what's going to lead to your team winning in the marketplace. You know, one analogy I would use is like, Think of, I think back to when I was 18 years old. Okay, I grew up in the East Coast. I moved out to the state of Washington to attend the University of Washington. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Didn't know anybody, and I decided to rush. And for those of, of our listeners that were in a fraternity or sorority, you probably remember what that was like. And you know, it's a lot of it's like a dating speed dating round where you're going to meet with fraternities and trying to like figure out who you like best and so forth. Well. Imagine if that's like a company, okay? You're graduating, you're, you're a high-end engineer, you're a, a high-end employee of any, any industry, and you're looking to you know, join a company. Imagine not even beginning to meet the people. Imagine it's a remote company where everyone's remote and your interview's over Zoom. Um, maybe you're lucky enough to meet with you know, the recruiter or the, you know, one of the executives for coffee in your city, but if it's a, if it's a team that's kind of spread throughout the country, you don't have a chance to get to know who you're going to be with and work with and be a part of. Um, whereas like if I go be with a company interview or in the, back to my example, when I was 18 and I was rushing to join a fraternity at the University of Washington, like I actually get to meet the people. It'd be really hard for me to, you know, build a culture around a, a team that's virtual when I don't even know who I'm really getting to, you know, join um, for the sake of not being able to meet them. It's just something that I thought about. Footnote on that whole notion. Now that, People have a choice. It's very easy to set up a virtual meeting. The, the value and the power of an in-person meeting, if you're maybe selling, <laughs> is now double or triple, exponentially more valuable if you have a choice to show up in person versus somebody else who's presenting on Zoom. In person. Uh, before we go too far off this subject, I want to loop back because I feel like we haven't really given a clear answer of like, why do these companies want people back in person? Right. We, we keep kind of going in these different areas of like, oh, well, maybe it's this, maybe this, maybe it's retention or whatever. And like not to say that those things aren't important, but I think the biggest reason that people want their people, their companies want their people back in person is that there is this belief that 
people are getting soft. People are not working as hard as they otherwise would be working at the office. They're doing things during the workday that might be good for them and convenient for them, but not in the best interest of the company. And of course, there are some of these people that are out there that are, you know, working three jobs, one for Google, one for Meta, and one for Snap or whoever, right? And that if those people are truly, truly exceptional uh, engineers or consultants or uh, whatever they're doing at these companies where they can do three jobs in a 60, 70, 80 hour work week and be happy doing that, be getting three paid three times the amount of money. I don't know. I think there's a, a, a legitimate ethical question there. But, you know, you start thinking about what would these people be like if they were in person from the company's perspective, right? If they were working at Google five days a week, they'd only be working on Google things. Google would be getting way, way better performance out of that person. So I think when most people are being like, oh, well, is work from home good or is work from home bad? If you ask anyone that is not a senior executive at a company or founder or venture capitalist or somebody that is ultimately a meaningful stakeholder in the success of the company, the vast majority of them go, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Like I do my chores during the day, I do laundry, I you know take my dog for walks, I do this and that. And they're, they're confusing what's good for them versus what's good for the company. And where we're coming at it from is what are, what are good for our, the, the companies that we work with? What are good, what's good for companies that want to be successful? And if your people are in the office, training the next generation of your workforce, getting smarter together, making sure that you're promoting this culture that is, that's gritty and tough and hardworking and not filled with distractions. That's ultimately why everyone wants people back. And of course, are there people that are highly disciplined workers that are working from home with high levels of productivity? Of course. So that is the, the exception to the rule. A lot of these people are just simply not working as hard. There's a lot of data that has emerged over the last nearly three years to prove that now. Like, I guess there's a general statement that no, why do people want people back in the office? Because no great idea has ever been proven analytically first, right? So people who are leaders just know my company is better with our people together. And it's really hard to articulate clear answers because the data is still being formulated on that, right? We're still working through a process. And, and full-time, this is the piece that I wanted to segue to a little bit, is full-time is not five days a week anymore. And this is where I, I don't believe that like, leaders don't need to be babysitters, but they know that our company's better together. Is it two days a week? Is it three days a week? Is it four days a week? But we know our people are better if they have flexibility in their workday. People have lives, they have, they have obligations, but they're going to get their work done. They're going to get their work done because they want to be a part of the company and they want to perform, right? So I think the balance is where we're trying to figure out where is that balance. And you know, I had a client right now that just that just required the people to come back twice a week um, for a couple of their key divisions, and it's Wednesdays and Fridays. So I asked them why Fridays. Is it because Fridays is the day the culture at this company? Friday is a day that we get together as a company and we celebrate each other. We celebrate the company. There's a lot of events. There's a lot of social gatherings. You know, a lot of companies are doing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and that's that's more about your team and your project and, and productivity. We want to celebrate our people, so we're going to have it Wednesday, Friday. And I said, oh, that's, I love that answer, right? So that's the right culture for them to bring people back on a day that's really not. It's not a day that's solely focused on work it's well, the company my, and the culture but i also suggest friday is the easiest day to justify kind of sneaking out at you know two o'clock or three o'clock you know to slide into the weekend um 
So maybe that's part of it too that we just don't know. It could be. Yeah, you know, you, you, the data is the, the data is hard. To, it's easy to skew, I should say. Yeah. So, so Brian, I, really I don't know if we like go ahead, John. I don't know if we end up at two days a week, three days a week, four days or, or five days. You, you you ruled out five days. I would not rule out five days a week. Uh, again, I think we're better together. What I do hope is that our teams have earned our trust so that they can make decisions on the margin at any yeah. given time. People with kids dropping off a child at daycare or at school or picking up a child, making an appointment and filling it in somewhere else, maybe filling in some remote work early in the morning or late in the evening. But just on the margin, that in itself is an improvement for society totally. in general really well-being. Is. Yeah, and I think you made a point earlier, Owen, around uh, call center works. There was, some, and I was just reading, uh, and my stats could be off, but there's something like a 10 to 15% productivity gain for call center workers to be remote. So one of my clients took all of their call centers, I forget how many it was, but it's tens of thousands of people around the yeah. country and sent them all home full time, right? And they had been a five day a week call center company. They had all these massive call centers around the country. And then now they're all home. Uh, but that type of work is a very, it's, 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 uh, attrition rates are through the roof. It's a difficult job. It's, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a tough career. Well, so, by the way, not every home environment can, can do that. Like some of these people need a place to go to right. do their call center work. So I don't, well, was, I'd like to see that same company 12 months from now and report back. Um, well, that, well, well, they, they have you have to opt in, right? So they push you home, and then you can apply to come come into an office. And they they're big enough where they have a lot of offices, so well, they have the flexibility to work at a, per, a person level, and they do have that ability. There's there's seats in every region for people that don't have the ability to go well, that, uh, it, full remote. And that's my point earlier is that it's at least from my own perspective, it's hard to convince me that someone that is in a customer support role where things are easily tracked. So to say that that person is not productive, right. Good is, point. it's just not true. Like right? you can tell how many inbound outbound calls were made or how many emails, I mean, all that stuff is tracked these days. And so to tell me that like that person must be in the office five days a week, it's just, I have a hard time believing that. Like, I think they can be just as productive. And it's very, very easy given those roles to see if they're productive and if they're doing their job. Good point. Um, and so let's be, mindful of that. And if we're building teams around those workers, recognize that they probably don't need to be in. But for those that we want to have in, to John's point, like I'm all for giving some sort of flexibility to pick your kid up at school or make the afternoon, you know, Little League game or stuff like that. I think that's a part where there has been some power given back to the employee um, as a result of the pandemic, which arguably is good for society, right? Like that you can actually go afford those things. And make up for lost time from home, right? We all have these wonderful laptops now with Zoom and everything else. You can do stuff to catch up on the work. Um, but back to your earlier, earlier comment, it's all about culture, right? It's really, really hard to build a culture remotely. And I think that's a big reason why people are, um, executives want people back. Can I riff one more time, Tucker? Uh, yeah, of course. Because Owen brought up productivity and measuring productivity and this notion that what an interesting time we're living in when you know, the workplace has been decoupled from working. <laughs> you know, you, you used to get credit for working because you were at work. Right. Um, that's not the case anymore. So now they do have to measure productivity. There's other ways to measure productivity. But I wanted to mention when I hear that or when I say that, I often say ways to measure productivity and contribution. Productivity is easier to measure 
contribution is a little more amorphous. Like that sort of sounds like contributing to the conversation at a gathering. Like I think we can measure productivity, but true contribution to the team feels a little more in person. So yeah, we can measure it. I like that. Anyway, yeah, just wanted I, to add that notion. I mean, it's it's just listening to this conversation, right? If you're one of our uh, our, our three listeners that are tuning in to actually listen to what we have to say related to corporate real estate. I mean, it's, it's very clear that if you look at what was being done before as an extreme, right, you know, 2018, 2019, before COVID came on anyone's radar, if you have to be in the office five days a week, there's no flexibility. We all accepted that sort of as life, right? I mean, I know that I was in the office five days a week, my entire career. And for everyone else on this, uh, you know, podcast that has had a longer career than I've had, I would imagine that was exactly the same for the decade or two decades uh, prior. And at the complete other end of that spectrum is the extreme of people shouting from the rooftops, we should never have to go in again, right? And there are some employees at certain of these companies that have said, oh my gosh, we should never have to go back into the office. This is crazy. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go work somewhere else where I can have a full-time remote job and waving their hands in the air. And, uh, you know, obviously all of us are sort of oscillating uh, kind of more in the moderate, um, maybe more towards the five days a week leaning, but not to five days a week. Although, John, I tend to agree with you that I think over time that that could change. There is this mean reversion that I think inevitably will happen. We have 300 years of people working in the office, people that make decisions around where people are going to work have been conditioned for, you know, 95% of their working years to date to do it in an office. Most leaders and most of the hardest workers at companies do want to work in an office. But what I say to those people that are shouting, I never want to go in ever, ever again, you start thinking about the second, third, fourth order uh, implications of that being accepted, right? We have a we have countries like India that are coming online in a digital age, right? You know, if you are thinking about outsourcing, outsourcing a call center or technology work and things like that to India, there was a major language barrier for a very, very long time. And they wouldn't understand slang. It was kind of harder to, to seem like you're an American for very obvious reasons. The fact that you weren't an American, you weren't living here, you weren't as ingrained in the culture. And that's completely changing because this generation of, uh, of you know, people that are growing up in India are growing up on the internet and the business language of choice in India is English. So you have this massive, massive population of people that speak English as well as most people in the US do that are coming online at the exact same time that some US workers are waving their arms in the air and saying, I never need to be in an office ever, ever again for my entire life. And part of me questions, are people getting so soft that they're willing to give up all of their pricing power around wages just to have a little bit of convenience of not having a commute a couple days a week? Curious what you all think. Uh, I think a couple things. One, uh, if you want me to take it, sorry, guys. Uh, one, companies have done a very poor job. Most of the people that you're referencing and, and painting with a broad brush are probably within the first, what, five years of their career. They, companies used to just have people in the office because that's where you went, right? And now when people have choice, companies have done a very poor job in coming up with the value proposition on why people should be in the office, first thing. Secondly, is I believe that these people don't know what they don't know. They're early in their careers and they don't understand 
what it means to grow in, within a company or within a career yet. And you just haven't hit those hit those plateaus or haven't hit those thresholds where they hope they wish they had their boss's 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 job because they're still learning and they're still drinking from the fire hose. So yes, but if I was a young worker, most of my job I could do at home. If you think back to our careers, uh, you know, we're supporting other people. We're supporting a lot of brokers that were very productive. We're not out meeting with clients. We're not, and we're brokers, right? You could do a lot of that remotely. So if you think about the jobs that these people have, if you're not if you're not the one to kind of transition and say what how, what was the career of the person that's three jobs ahead of mine who's five years older than me if you're not thinking that way every day I'm sure that you you're justifying I can work from home and I never want to go back because I'm doing great where I am well pick your head up in five years and see where you are and that's that's the unknown that that people aren't even seeing I think it has to do with ambition right like I it's a negative I, on the on the population. Tucker thinks people are lazy. Owen I, thinks people that lack ambition. No, no, you, like, listen, listen. <laughs> I have a point to make, and it's a good one, which is that it's it's okay to want to work from home, right? Like, it's okay to be one of those people that shouts from the rooftops. I don't care, but just understand that if your executive leaders are in the office three, four, five days a week, and you are never there, and you never meet them less a Zoom call or a conference call, it's going to be hard for you to build a relationship with them and scale your career. I'm just telling you that's a fact. I, I know that from talking to executive leaders daily. Now, that being said, if you don't have the ambitions that you know maybe a type A person has to scale their career quickly, and you are fine, you know, staying in a role that you're comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. So stay in your lane and do that. And there will probably be opportunities throughout your career, assuming to Tucker's point, we don't have foreign workers, you know, all of a sudden do the same job with even possibly more productivity for less money. That's the biggest misnomer. And that's the biggest risk. Those that want to work from home imminently or into perpetuity have, um, can I but speak I just, to Tucker? Yeah, go ahead, John. The, the, the uh, super interesting point you bring up, and let me introduce this notion that work from home introduces temporal flexibility. You can choose when you do your work. Work from anywhere introduces geographic flexibility, where you literally can move to another state, you can move to another yeah. country. And I think Tucker's point is really valid, like, careful what you ask for. In a work from anywhere dynamic, you're now entering a global workforce competing yeah. for work. Super interesting. I mean, Steve, Steve Case just wrote a book on it. It's the rise of the rest. Like if you look at the U.S., oh, look yeah. at all these secondary cities. And they're just the boom towns of, of the, the Rust Belt or the upper Midwest. And it's because people said, you know what? I don't have to be in the office. I'm going to move. I'm going to go to a great uh, cost of living, quality of life, and I'm out of New York City. I'm out of LA. I'm out of Boston, Seattle. Uh, I'm moving, and and so companies are grappling with all of the issues. And I think not to pivot this conversation, but hopefully the people that are haven't been bored enough to to, to stop listening are who are listening are our clients and future clients and decision makers, right? So I think a lot of them have have at least based on my conversation, I've got their head around what the issues are, what the different pro, yeah, personas are, people that are going to come back, not going to come back. But with the question I keep hearing, and maybe someone had a, a, an opinion on it, would be, 
how, how do we start to get people to come back in higher numbers? What do we do? Um, is it amenities? Is it, is it, um, yeah, what is it? And, uh, and I think it would be interesting if people had some ideas on some really cutting edge companies and what they're doing to try to create higher, higher levels of occupancy. I mean, if you look at certain landlords, now landlords are not our clients, but some landlords do it better than others. And if you look at related companies at Hudson Yards in New York, their brand new buildings, their occupancy levels are 20 to 25 points above New York City. They're in the 70% occupancy of those new buildings, where New York is in the high 40s, not even touching maybe 50%. So how are they, how are they successful? And how does that translate to our clients and, and the advice that we provide? I, I want to suggest that Owen tells a story that I know he has to tell. That the whole notion of what it even means to go into the office, like maybe it was sort of uh, static thinking to... I mean, everyone has to go to the same office. Everyone has to go to the downtown urban center because that's where we work. Um, Owen, I'd love to hear the story that I know you have to tell about, you know, less urban centers of gravity and, you know, multiple hubs. Well, that's just, I mean, there's, there's companies doing exactly that, which is what John's getting to. And what I've said before is that there are companies that have um, basically said, hey, coming to the, our massive headquarters that is multiple floors in a high-rise downtown doesn't necessarily work for everybody because for some, like, let's just take the example. I've got a client who has an awesome team. They were downtown Seattle and they decided to bifurcate their future headquarters when their lease expired last year. And they opened up three different offices throughout the Puget Sound. Why? Because they have awesome team members that unfortunately just don't make the living wage that affords them the ability to buy a home in Seattle. Okay. But these are awesome people that want to raise a family in a home, not an apartment. So they move far south, they move far north. In order to allow, you know, encourage those people to come into the office and be a part of the team, the company realized asking them to commute an hour and a half in downtown um, on a bus probably doesn't work. Parking is really expensive. It's $330 a month per stall. That doesn't work. So let's open up these offices that cater to those that are south of the city, those that are north, and then we'll have an office downtown for those that want to come into the downtown office. Now, whether that works long term, I don't know if they're a year into it, but at least they're getting their people back. Uh, which to this executive leadership team was a goal, was important to them. Um, so we'll they're see how that back by, by meeting them where they are. They're, they're, they're moving where the they office. Are. I yep. love that story. I really that may not something to that. It, it may not work for everybody. Um, and again, I think the challenge of that, recognizing that's not a perfect solution necessarily, is that now you're in three different spaces, right? You've got teams in three, but they're working through it. And so far it's a success. I think it remains to be seen kind of where things, um, where, where things settle. But even when you were in a tower and you were on eight different floors, you weren't seeing everybody every day anyway. You got your subsets. One of the interesting things, and I'm not promoting this as the the answer to the solution by any means, and I'm interested in talking more about what we're seeing our, our clients do and what we'd recommend companies do to bring their people back. But the reality is that the economic landscape and the uh, human capital landscape is is completely changing and has completely changed over the last you know 60, 90 days here. And the amount of layoffs that are occurring, uh, you know, generally speaking, I think that there is there is a good chance that many companies, and I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it because it certainly is not, but I think many companies are going to be in a position to say, look, if you want to work for our company, you come into the office. If you don't, good luck in the job market. It's a really tough market out there now. And again, it's not a great way to promote a top company culture and get the most out of your people and have everyone be fired up to go into the office. 
and then be upset to be there all, all the time. But at the same time, I think that we're mostly driven by interest rates. We are approaching that threshold in the economic cycle where employers, the reasons won't matter. It will just be, this is what we're doing. And that's our decision. In, in the uh, all too often repeated phrase, go pretend to work somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's 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 interesting, and he did it at a very uh, you know a a, com a cutting edge, forward thinking company. We thought uh, probably a lot more with him running it, but you know, speaking to some clients that are companies that are in highly competitive, and they want the best engineers, they want the best of the best. They are scared to death about that taking that approach, and. And you know what? They may take it with certain people, right? There's certain types of employees or certain, and even Elon's doing it. Like you got to send him an email. I'm sure the best engineers at his company, I'm sure they have more flexibility than others. So it's, it's, uh, I, Tucker, I agree with you. I think people, smart people are going to realize that proximity bias is real and I need to be in, in the office to, to have a job. But I think there's going to be, you know, at these, at these high tech companies where the culture is different, they've never really been in the office full time and they're really sought after engineers. There's going to be a whole class of people that are still in charge. They, they still run the show at, at, at you know, yeah. at some the, level. The other thing to talk about, too, though, is we, we've spent a lot of time talking about technology companies, which obviously has been a major driver of economic growth over the last couple of years and has only recently slowed down as interest rates have risen. But, you know, these, these same ideas apply to other segments of the economy, right? And I, I would actually argue that in many cases, it applies even more so. I mean, imagine that you're the CEO of a, of a giant uh, food company and you're going to interview a creative agency to hire for your next major advertising campaign. Don't you think you ask, hey, what, how do you all work? Are you all in the office? What, what's it look like? What's your team culture look like? What's the camaraderie and communication look like? How often are you together in person? I think that that really matters as a sales tool for a lot of these companies. And when you think about what most business service companies struggle with in terms of scaling, the number one reason that, you know, there's a law firm that is stuck at 10 partners. I mean, sometimes they just never want to grow. They never want to be larger. But most often it's driven by their lack of ability to recruit people and the, or their lack of ability to acquire clients. So that's a major inhibitor of growth for people is how do you acquire clients, right? And I think that these companies that are making major decisions around hiring vendors, I mean, I know I certainly will be extremely biased when hiring vendors for Hughes Marino to, I, I will have a massive preference for people that are working in person. And it's not it's not for any reason beyond that. I, I genuinely believe that their work product will be better. Yeah. Reason people, Go I mean, Please. I got a question for you guys. You've been asking some really insightful questions. You know, we, we've had a tough time getting people back to work, right? Like it's, it's up by and large. And I think in order to do so, you have to convince your team that work is better than home. Meaning that the place you come to is better than sitting at your kitchen table, you have a desk in your bedroom or if you're afforded a home office, your home office. And so the landlords have been doing everything they can to try and you know, promote coming back with amazing amenitized spaces in the building. But maybe corporate America is getting it wrong with how they're building out their, their own spaces, relying on that of the landlord to deliver what they're doing, but forgetting the fact that it really starts with what happens in your own space. And why aren't we thinking about hospitality forward type spaces that foster collaboration through 
wellness and cultural aspects of the space that then emulates what that person was trying to achieve at home, but because their desk was in their bedroom and their bed was right behind them and they were you know cramped in, they, they just couldn't totally achieve what they're trying to achieve. Um, and so I guess my question to all of you is like, is this whole work from home thing, is it not so much about the commute and flexibility, which of course is a component of it, but it's the fact that corporate America by and large hasn't really changed themselves. They're offering you the same office that you were in before the pandemic. And so if you have a lease coming up or an opportunity to do things differently, Maybe it's incumbent upon companies to think how they're going to use their space and how they're going to build out their space so they can foster that that need or desire to come back to the office. What do you guys think? Yeah, I love that. And it is just what I wanted to mention next, because it kind of brings a conversation back to what we do every day. Right. So let me start by saying a few companies are experimenting with this fully remote thing. Not most, a few. Um, a few companies are saying same space, same plan, five days a week, butts yeah. in seats. Most companies, and I mentioned that the leases are starting to roll and people are starting to be forced to make decisions. I would say generally, and I wonder if you all would agree, that most companies taking a critical look at their real estate are ending up shedding 20 to 30% of what they occupied before. Yeah. So they're going back to a little bit less. And then we help them to design the kind of spaces that are really inviting. Like instead of, I'm a bigger, much bigger fan of the pull approach to draw people into the office than the push approach, which says, get back to the office. Totally. And that's what we do is, okay, what does that mean for you as a company? What does great space mean for you? What's going to work for you to invite your team to in, incite and, and, and encourage your team to, to be at the office? Second point real quick, but it, key to it as well is as a leader, be there. Like to say to your team, I want you in the office. I'm going to be over here in my you know, comfortable pad that has three offices I could choose from. No, no, no. You as a leader need to be there and say to your team, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there five days a week. I'd like to see you there. You know, come visit me. But great spaces and then be there as a leader and invite your team in. I like the pull approach better than the push. Yeah, I think I think the, I forget who said it, but um, companies trying to to create culture change or to create organizational change usually do two things. One is they announce it. Hey, we're going to have a new culture. Right. right? Uh, um, uh, and uh, the ones that do it the best, I should say, is it's a it's a one to one intimate relationship starting at the top. Your CEO has to be in the office or whoever the leader of that office is. That the CEO. They have to be there and they have to. And the people that work for them have to want to be there to see them. And then the people below them want to see them. And it's a top-down culture shift on a one-to-one -one ratio. That's just the way it's going to work, right? And, and oh, you, you, you nailed it with, with corporate America is slowly moving there, right? And, it's, and it's, they, they're collecting data. They're doing test sites. They're activating test sites. They're using different programs. I've got a client that their entire uh, their entire pro property management, internal property management, or client service delivery around the real estate team is all comes out of the hospita hospitality industry. They're all former hotel run. They used to run hotels, and and now they're running their offices. And it's they don't know anything about real estate, but they sure know how to make people happy and excited to be there, right? Which is I thought was a great idea. And um, can you do it? I have a question. Can you do it in your existing office? Or are we going to start to see the forward thinking companies 
move. Usually in a downturn, you see companies restock and renew. It's less expensive, less cash, less capital. Um, are you, we're going to start to see companies move more because it's really hard to create the, that's the change in your space and shed 30%, make your space more inviting, make your space activated while you're trying to operate it. Can you do it? One more comment on this. I was in Washington, D.C. yesterday uh, during office space with a client, and they're looking for a new home. And we were at this building, this pretty nice building, and the landlord said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you give me five minutes. I want to show you a space that we just built out, like literally like 45 days ago, the tenant moved in. Like, sure, we'll go up. And it wasn't like your typical tech tenant. It was a tenant in the professional service industry. We walked in, and he said, just, just, I have permission. So walk around this floor. It was like they have multiple floors in the building, but it was their main kind of hub floor. And we stood there and my client next to me, CEO, uh, turned to me and goes, do you feel it? And I said, oh yeah. And what he was referring to was, do you feel the energy in this room right now? Because it wasn't private offices with door closed. It wasn't workstations. People were working in, and I could, it's another, it's for another podcast. Maybe we have Nick and Kristen on our, our designers, but the way that they had curated this main hub floor was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it was people who was activated. People were moving around. You could hear the espresso machine going. People were working on their laptops and it was multi-generational. You had people in their fifties, forties, thirties, and twenties working. And that was what hit it for me. And, and my client yesterday was when we saw this space because that company, and I won't say who they are, they nailed it in my opinion. They figured a way, John, to your point, to hold people back versus like pushing them and saying, no, you must come back to work. It was like, hey, we built this, come take a look. And I think by and large, their team came and took, took a look. It was like, this is where I'm coming every day. So it's so interesting, that, that description, right? Because we, we've, all, we've all been in that situation where you walk in somewhere and whether it's a cool restaurant, you're like, wow, yeah. this is really special. This is amazing energy. You walk into an office. In the context of going into a place of business and feeling that energy, I think the biggest contributor to that energy, more so than anything else, is the people that are there actually care about the company's success. That's what's creating the energy. And how do you get those people to care about the company's success? Well, you have to you have to meet them in the middle, right? This idea of, hey, I can work from home, no commute, I save money, more flexibility to take care of personal tasks during the day, potentially less distractions if you you know don't have kids or somebody at your house or roommates or whatever maybe better life balance. How do you get all of those things um, out of the way and have somebody say, no, I'm coming in because this is important to me. And ultimately, people need to be willing to make a little bit of personal sacrifice in order for their companies yeah. to be successful. And I feel that we're sort of at this crossroads at a, at a more macro level in our country. And the, this metaphor of what's happening in the, in the corporate real estate world is sort of uh, indicative of what's going on at a much more macro level, people need to be willing to do the hard thing in order to be a contributing member of society to really move the needle and continue to have, you know, this American dynamism and a long-term success in our economy, right? People have to do the hard thing. And I think in, you know, part because of COVID in part because of, I think generations that are, you know, coming up now, I think that there is a large amount of people that have gotten soft and that this is a, this is a way to be, be tougher and to um, sort of make an adjustment in your life that allows you to be a higher performing person. 
and that these companies that are doing that are helping get the best out of their people, not only for the sake of the company, but also for the sake of the people on their team. It's an exa- Yesterday's example was exactly that, Tucker. It was a company saying to their employees, look, I care. I've invested millions of dollars that I didn't have to invest in creating a brand new place for us to be together. I need you, employee, to show me that you care. Come back and join us. Let's do this together. Now, I'm making my effort, but this we have to be in the middle. And that's why I'm not pulling you back, right? I'm not, I'm not with the force. I'm offering you something that is better than before, showing you that I actually give a damn. I need you to care too. And if you care, we can accomplish amazing things. If you don't care, and we're just a paycheck, maybe we're not the right culture for you. So, Tucker, I would say, you know, people don't have to do hard things. You know, we're different kind of company here. Marine. We talk about hard things all the time. We talk about practicing doing hard things. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, and those who do choose to do hard things, again, let the marketplace decide. The people that choose to do hard things are more likely to win in the competitive marketplace. So you don't have to. It's up to you. But, you know, yeah, you want to compete, I, you want I hear to my, my point is that the companies that have that kind of energy are filled with people that are committed to doing the hard thing because that's what they know it takes to win. And they're willing to make that extra effort to make sure that the company that they're a part of, that they're proud to be a team member of, wins. Yeah. Uh, so look, look at it. I think my my take on this, Tucker, and a little different is is a little more optimistic on people. I think it's inside people. And this is the reason that I, I wake up every day. It's the reason I'm in this business. And because when you see a transformation of a company or a location from an office that is a nice office, a high quality class A office to something that's transformational, like you're talking about. Oh, and you know, I have a client that's done two, two large new office um, projects in, um, in, one of them is an older building, one's a new building, but but exposed brick and timber buildings, right? You know, you, your mill buildings, your your high density uh, timber buildings that have massive atriums and fourteen foot ceilings, and you walk in there, they don't have people in there. You can start to feel the energy. And these companies have made it's not a price decision; it's a decision. I want my people to be in an environment that they love. They want to come here. And, and I think those people, it's in it, it's inside everybody, I think, to be, they want to do good. They want to be highly productive. But if the culture is, we're going to spend the least amount of money, we're going to make it pretty good, but we're not going to make it the best. We're going to, we're going to offer free lunch, but we're not going to build the best space you possibly can. People just start to, they, they retract to kind of the, the, uh, the energy level that's set from the top. And when companies make the, and this is what makes me excited about our business, is when companies make the commitment to their people, and they spend the money, they go through a process to make a very highly informed analytical decision on their real estate, that can change an entire company's outlook on their people, how their people act, how their people perform, how they can hire people, how long people stay at the company. Like Our business is transformative, and there's no better time in my career that we have the ability to really make a difference in the in the success of our clients. It's really exciting, and and I think you know I think it's inside everybody. We just it just you need to bring it out. Can, can I share a story to go with that? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell it quickly. So I was hired by Bumblebee Seafood to renew their headquarter office lease in San Diego. A beautiful space, suburban, a little bit ordinary, and uh, 
through the process, just ask them to keep an open mind. I ended up moving them to, the, to a brick and timber building at Petco Park, uh, just transformative. Back to the downtown, to the legacy of the tuna fishing fleet in San Diego, tapping into that, the smell of the salt air. And the space just, the team is, you know, the impact of the space delivering and the team moving in is just transformational and different. And that's what we get to do every day. So yes, yeah. I love those kinds of stories. I agree. Well, if you if you want any inspiration, look to Marriott's new Global World Headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. It's a 21-story, 785,000-square-foot facility that they opened in September. So this was going on during the pandemic. Um, and I, it's there's a lot to share about it. You can Google it. Um, they, there's a lot of information. But what I, one of the things I thought was the coolest parts of their entire space, you guys, was the, the top floor that historically would be what? to the executives, right? The CEO and CEO and so forth. Their top floor is called their growth center. And the growth center is a place where there's um, lots of uh, things for people to grow as individuals and hopefully scale in their career, right? And there's there's um, uh, all sorts of, like whether they have a lecture room, they've got um, cultural aspects of the company you can learn and, and grow upon. Um, they've got participation opportunities to be a part of panels and so forth. Um, I thought that was really cool. Like if you are committed to the company, like Tucker was talking about earlier, uh, this company has developed an entire floor, the top floor of their new tower in Bethesda, Maryland, to serving as space to enhance the careers of those that choose to work at Marriott. Uh, I thought that was, I don't know, uh, it's pretty cool. I haven't seen the building myself, but I'd love to tour it someday. Imagine their employees saying, no, no, thank you. I'll just choose to stay remote. (laughs) Right, yeah. So we've spent a bunch of time talking about all of our views on work from home, hybrid work, and all that. I'd love to talk about the future state of the office market, right? Like, what are our predictions for how this is going to impact the office market, in addition to the other factors that are impacting the office market, right? I would actually argue that way more so than work from home, the bigger impact in the office market over the last six months has been the massive, massive slowdown in venture funding and IPO funding that's occurred. Um, I think that's had a more negative and profound impact on the actual space market than the pandemic did. I think interest rates have had a way more profound negative impact on the valuation of these office buildings than work from home and hybrid work has. So I want to talk about that in closing. Uh, I think we should all give a quick opinion on what we think is going to happen over the next year, two years, five years to the office market. Uh, and we'll wrap it up with that. I'll go first. So uh, we've talked a lot about the the downtown urban centers have been hard hit through the pandemic with people scrambling out. High rise buildings were hard to occupy. And and this idea that companies are generally giving back 20 or 30 percent of their office space. I think markets like downtown San Francisco are just getting hammered. Um, that we Owen's story about moving to the suburban markets, moving with hubs. Um, we've seen that play out before in previous cycles, moving from downtown centers to suburban locations. And I think that's happening to an extent now. And my prediction and how that will resolve itself, I'm sort of a one trick guy, but here I go again, market forces, you know, market forces of rents in those downtown buildings are going to come down. Uh, It's already happening in San Francisco and they're going to come down to the point at which it's low enough to draw folks back in economic decisions. The marketplace will draw people back down, down, but only after a lowering of rents, and depending how much it declines, that might require a you know 
change in ownership of some of those some of those large office towers in the downtown markets. But I think market forces will eventually bring people back downtown to great space at a steep discount to what was previously market. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. And I think uh, I think you'll hit on it. So I'm going to take a little different perspective. Um, yeah, what we've talked about is a lot of very difficult strategic decisions that are going to be facing our clients and prospects and companies in the marketplace over the next year, two years, five years, right? These are these are transformative times for companies as they, they look to determine how they're going to use real estate, where they're going to put it, how big it's going to be, and how you attract your people back to the office. And I would tell you, making a decision on a partner is really important. And what I love is is listening and, listening and following along to the major real estate firms in the market. Everyone knows them. There's the global firms, right? They are all hemorrhaging people, resources, the market is turning against them. And why is that? It's because of what Tucker talked about. Investment sales work, um, revenue tied to landlords and owners on the investment sides of all of those businesses have been have dried up considerably because of the rise in interest rates and the slowdown in the investment markets. And that has trickled down to the bottom line of all these firms. And when you wake up in the morning and you're a company and you have somebody representing you and all of the firms in the marketplace represent these owners and all of the resources are being tied up by these owners. And you've seen it because these companies are all having layoffs. They're all, they're all, they're all the brokers you talk to in the marketplace are all negative. And, and you look and say, wow, they are really beholden to all these large owners in the marketplace. And then you have a firm like Hughes Marino and it's really exciting to be free from, from that, that, um, the grasp of really where all of the revenue comes from at these large firms is around ownership. And it's exciting to be at a firm where we wake up every day and we have resources, we have quality people, we're adding people, not subtracting. We're, we're making decisions and working with clients in a way that uh, is the best thing for the client without any distractions or any other influences, which I would tell you, and coming from two other firms, it is not, it's, it's not the same in the marketplace and it's really exciting to be here. Look, here's what's happening. Uh, and I, I'm back to the outlook on, on the office market, if you want my own hypothesis, is that you've had structural changes in demand, right? Like we all know that there's just less demand today than there was years ago. Um, we also have, most cities, I should say, have a, a flood of new supply which is really a result of the free money flowing in from the Fed. And now you've got rising interest rates, which are um, forcing, in some cases, uh, debt payments to exceed cash flow, right? There's buildings behind me in this city, I won't say the buildings, that are really struggling with low occupancy. And so the biggest threat to our office markets right now is what happens to all this commodity space? If, if what happens, if what I professed happens, which is that companies look to reinvent themselves and get better space, offer offer something that's better than home to their employees, are they going to go to those buildings that are antiquated and old um, and that are reeling with, or with, with lack of occupancy right now? Probably not. There's going to be a flight to quality. And as a result, that class A commodity or class B product is going to drag the market down. And so while the class A premium buildings will still, by and large, probably stay relatively well occupied, it's going to drag those B buildings, those A minus buildings are going to truly drag the market down and some will go into foreclosure. And I don't know if the banks want them. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there's, you'll hear a lot of talk about, oh, there's going to be conversions to apartments. Well, the reality is these buildings behind me in downtown, they're too big. 
you can't put apartments on a 25,000 square foot floor plate because the core factor is just, you know, the, di the distance from the windows back to the core would require these long skinny apartments if you're gonna have any with windows. And so I think right now we're entering a period, 2023 is gonna be truly an incredible time to be a tenant and recast leases or sign new leases at rents that were probably indicative of what we saw in you know, five to 10 years ago in some cases. Um, and a lot's gonna depend on demand as well. It's always a supply and demand situation. Um, but I think by and large, we're entering, or we are already in, in, as a result of some of the terms that I'm achieving on behalf of our clients, um, one of the best times to be a tenant I've seen since the 2008 financial crisis. I agree 100%. There's, I think you'll see a bifurcation of the, of the, uh, of the market where landlords, certain landlords aren't going to be able to do deals. I mean, yeah, exactly. You're just going to have to turn the keys in because their basis is too high to, to beat the market. And then you'll have other landlords that'll be, you know, chasing, chasing the cash flow. It'll be an exciting time for, for our clients. It is an exciting time. And I think it's only going to get better in 23 and 24. I, uh, I, I think that office rents are going to completely collapse in most major cities. Um, Owen talked about these structural changes in demand that are occurring. We all recognize that. We've all talked about that on these calls. The thing that we haven't talked about so much is over a long enough period of time, there are many buildings in all of these core markets around the country that are ultimately going to go into receivership. These are buildings that uh, have either variable rate debt or have uh, mortgage uh, maturities that are occurring over the next couple of years when interest rates will presumably be very high. And you start thinking about what happens through that process. Um, there's this massive sort of unraveling and resetting of the market that impacts even those buildings that Owen is referencing as the flight to quality. And what happens is that these buildings that are the you know B, B plus, um, A minus buildings that are not attracting tenants that are saying, look, the only way we're going to go back is if we go back to amazing space that we can pull our team in and accomplish the point of being back in the office of getting everyone together. Well, as these B or A minus type buildings that aren't included in that flight to quality segment um, have debt payments that exceed their cash flow and they turn the keys back, it is sort of an inevitability that these buildings will be sold at a major loss, wiping out probably all of the equity of those groups that turn the keys back to the lender. And whoever buys that building is now going to have a basis that's 30, 40% lower than probably the rest of the market. They now have the ability to go and invest capital to make that a A-plus building or an A building or provide all types of new amenities and things that allow them to compete with these other buildings. Maybe at a lower price point, maybe they're not truly as nice, but at a lower price point where, hey, we're almost as nice and we're 20% you know, less expensive, but we're still way above that threshold of being nice enough to have your team be really, really excited about the experience here. As that happens, even these buildings where there has been a flight to quality, it affects everyone because it pulls the entire market down with them. So it will be really interesting to, to see what actually happens over the you know medium long term with uh, the market and these buildings and uh, you know what what ultimately occurs. Yeah, it's 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 exciting. I mean, I don't know if it pulls the whole market down with it. I think you know, I, I'd take a more uh, uh, approach that the market is there's going to be a class A market or class A plus market, and then there's going to be everything else. Like, who's going to move into the fifth floor of a mid block, you know, former class A building in downtown Boston or downtown Seattle? Like, who? I don't care if the building is doing rents in the 30s or in the 50s or the 60s or the 20s. Like. 
who's going to move into a building that doesn't have high high ceilings, high quality light? Who's going to dump a couple hundred dollars a foot capital into space to try to make the commitment to try to make it nice when instead of spending you know thirty dollars or twenty five dollars a foot, you go spend fifty in a brand new Class A plus high quality building it just take a little bit less space and it's you know that's what i'm seeing my clients we're in the market right now in a in a and their range was kind of 15 to twenty thousand feet but there's a brand new mixed mixed use development that has a single floor left it's twenty five thousand feet and the client doesn't want to look at anything else they're going to take the whole floor because it is absolutely it's the hudson yards of this market and they're like i don't care we're going after that space lock it down for us and it's and success is not the rental rate. Success is getting the space for them because everything else sucks. And and uh, I just think it'll be interesting. The result, Tucker, is the same thing. Like I just think there's going to be massive carnage in the marketplace. Owners are going to be trying to reinvent themselves, pouring good money after bad. There's going to be buildings that just sit vacant. You know, they, they put a food court in a mid-block building in Boston. They've got all these tenants in it. Like, no one goes to it, right? It's just... What do you do? It's going to be an interesting next yeah. five years. Is you know, it's two things. One is leases have to roll, and the debt has to roll, right? And leases have a big tail on it. The debt's I think is going to mature first, but there's still cash flow. A lot of the buildings are 90 percent leased. Well, let me let me give some hope because that's pretty depressing. Um, is that if you're a tenant out there, if you're an executive leader that's in charge of real estate or you're running a company. This is literally the next five to 10 years are going to accretively get better and better and better and better for those that want space. Because not only are the buildings going to have to up their game to get you to come back and lease space, but the buildings that Brian's referencing that aren't that great, some will go into receivership and they'll sell on the courthouse steps for pennies on the dollar. And to Tucker's point, they're going to, their base is going to be so low, they're going to invest a tremendous amount of capital into the asset and Brian, I partially disagree with you. There are some companies that will lease space based on price. Um, and they might turn a fifth floor space mid-block into something truly phenomenal because what they're able to achieve there based on the landlord's contribution and with the landlord's under the building far exceeds that which they can get in some high-rise buildings. So there will be companies that, that lease that mid-block space. Maybe not a lot, but there will be some. But my point is, is that I'm thrilled. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like this is where things get fun. Especially for serving the, these the tenants, because this is opportunity. Like we're doing transactions now with landlords that see the cliff coming, and they're do, they're already betting long because those landlords are trying to stave off future um, future loss of tenancy in exchange for offering some insane terms right now for our clients. And so, like this is when things get really really fun for tenants and those like us that serve them. Can, can yeah, I maybe, maybe oh, and maybe people will lease those mid-block buildings if they pull every other floor out and make you know, <laughs> take a twelve-foot ceiling and make it twenty-four feet. But hey, it's all possible, man. It's all possible. You're right, Tucker. Let me let me make a quick point here. Just I think it's worth clarifying. Like we're not rooting for the market decline. The the, the market cycle is a force of nature. Yep. <laughs> I've been through a few of these. And the fact is we represent companies looking to lease or buy or build the buildings for their teams. And we do it at every phase of the cycle. It just so happens that it looks like we're coming up on another downturn in the cycle. And that's where we can really uh, deliver some, like you said, fun. I, 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 John, I would take it a little bit. 
you know, on a per, you're right, a hundred percent. But personally, I've had a client sum this up very well one time. He said, he said, for the last what ten years, landlords think they're the smartest people in the room, and they just keep growing rents, and all of the value of their building is created by me, the tenant, and and owners have forgotten that. I think in a lot of cases, and I think it's coming back and where tenants are now going to be the most important people in the room, not the owner, which is which is different than I think, a little different than what you were saying. I, I can't help myself. I tend to be more compassionate. I think most of the landlords are good folks and they're just using the leverage they had available, just like the tenants when they have the leverage are going to use it and the market forces are somewhere. hundred percent. You know, negotiated outcomes. John, the point around not rooting for the market demise is really important. I mean, like you, like you're saying, the market is a force of nature. At the same time, I would argue that we're rooting for the what the market should do to occur. And there's a lot of participants in the corporate real estate market. For example, most of the big brokerage companies in commercial real estate that are some of the largest landlords themselves and get 90 plus percent of the revenue from providing services to landlords. That's their central client base. And when you think about that, the amount of bias that exists in corporate real estate reporting because of the amount of money to be made from these landlords is, is really wild. And the result is that I genuinely believe that there are a lot of these companies out there that are, are brokerage companies that are focused around servicing landlords that sometimes represent companies when it's convenient that are propping up the market and slowing down the inevitable market cycle that should occur. Instead of this resetting period where rents go down, landlords recognize that they're in a bad position and everyone is kind of, hey, we all know that this is the environment. It sucks to be a landlord. It's a really good time to be a tenant. Let's transact on a reasonable basis based on where supply and demand and the you know, future outlook and supply and demand in the general economy is. We're, it's going to take two, three, four times longer to get to that point because you have this massive industry that is built almost entirely around servicing landlords. And those people are the ones writing the market reports. They're the ones telling the news. And I just want to clarify that what I'm rooting for is for the market to actually unfold on a natural path, which we all agree is, is looks pretty bleak for landlords. And of course, we wish that weren't the case, but it simply is. And we can't ignore the reality. And writing a different reality may delay that from you know being publicly known, but it is inevitable that the truth around office space and what's happening is going to materialize in dramatically lower rents. Yeah, I mean, spot, yeah. So, so the 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 concept that real estate's a trailing indicator, right? But there's but there's small bits of information that you can see where it's coming. Like if you look at Chinese investment in U.S. real estate, it's they're deleveraging. U.S. real estate. If you look at, uh, I mean, Jonathan Gray was giving an interview the other day. Look at Blackstone's B-REIT and all the redemptions coming out of B-REIT, and they're trying to stop the outflow of capital. So you see these large and this and then quietly some institutional owners that you thought would never sell real estate are starting to to divest of assets that that they are that are well positioned, stabilized assets, and and that's you start to see little breaks. But because of lease term and because of there's just so much built up inertia. And so much is so much of the market is propped up, like you said, Tucker. Um, it's going to take some time. I think the brokerage houses, yeah. like I was referencing earlier, are seeing the carnage first because they're so transactional 
driven. I think there was a 37% reduction in, in uh, investment sales activity in one of the brokerage houses. And their, and, and their bottom line is just, is just being decimated. So um, you know, there's certain signs you can start to look for where this breaks, but it's taking some time to fully work through the system. Let's go back to BRE for a second, because this encapsulates a point that I think is so important for us to keep in mind. This is such a freaking complicated market to understand. And the media does such a poor job reporting on what's actually happening. So 100%. the biggest reason that there are redemptions for BREIT right now at a dramatic scale is that it is one of the few uh, investments that's actually done very well in 2022. At the same time that you have a dramatic amount of investments that have done very poorly. So it's no coincidence that these redemptions are happening in December, right? When people are essentially tax loss harvesting, they have these pretty major gains that they've experienced by being a B-read owner. And then they have these major losses. So they have the ability to offset those major gains with the losses in their portfolio. I think that's what's driving the uh, exit of a lot of investors in B-read and the limiting of redemptions way more so than anything else. Um, not to mention, B-read is not a major owner of office space. I mean, you look at what their portfolio is across all of the different asset classes of real estate. But I think like this is a perfect example because I've seen all of those headlines too. I was very curious of what's going on. I mean, I happen to think that Blackstone are amongst the smartest real estate investors in the world. And that regardless of economic conditions, they're probably good people to have money invested with compared to others. But still, it made me nervous and I investigated. And if you don't go to the second, third level down, you may be sitting there being like, oh my gosh, is b about to you know, have a massive uh, massive liquidity issues and have to start selling all these buildings at major losses to fulfill redemption requests, it's just not going to happen. I think there's a herd mentality because of you know, in the fine print, there is restrictions on uh, the liquidity of your of your investment, right? So there are people, as soon as they start to hear the redemptions, it's just piling on. It's a snowball running downhill. People want to be able to get out. And if they do have to start liquidating assets, at what valuation are they getting out? So everybody's just jumping in because it's been so good. They have huge returns. And um, in this, this, there's uncertainty in the marketplace, though, right? They, you know, people, people are concerned about the housing market. They're concerned about the commercial real estate market. They're concerned about the industrial market. The headlines are all negative. So, so is that and for those listening? I just want to. You know, some of our listeners may not know what BREIT is. BREIT is Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust. And so it gives investors like those of our listeners and those on this podcast the opportunity to invest in a non-publicly traded REIT. Um, and these are, and that REIT is primarily invested in commercial real estate assets, in some cases debt. But to Tucker's point, it's not strictly office space. It's commercial real estate at large. Um, so just want to make that clarification in case anyone's trying to Google BREIT right now. Yeah, okay. it's, uh, I, I love... I love where this episode went because I think our clients should be excited that tenants have a better opportunity in the next five years than they did the previous five years to really make a difference within their companies. And the, the clients that we're working with, uh, you know, I make, that gets me up every day and excited about what we do. Well, I would, and I'd say to people that are out there that are on the, that are trying to figure out what they're going to do, whether you're a hybrid company, whether you're fully remote, you just need a space for a touchdown or whether you want to reimagine your corporate office space. Like, let's go, let's figure this out. This is a huge opportunity and I can show you empirically and I can show you through solutions we're solving for our clients. 
it is fun time right now to be a tenant. And I mean that genuinely. I know a lot of people have day jobs and real estate may not be considered fun. And of course, it's what I do. And it just gets me up in the morning. But it is tremendous right now. And it's an opportunity to rethink what you're doing with your space, which will have grave effects on your culture, good or bad. Um, and ultimately, let the, let the real estate solve for the business, right? Now is the opportunity where you can actually do that. You can tell us or an advisor what you're trying to achieve with your company. And for the first time in many years, you can let the real estate solve for that at tremendous pricing levels versus what we saw before the pandemic. So that concludes episode one of the Hughes Marino podcast. Let us know how we did. Is there anything you liked, anything you didn't like, anything you want us to cover on one of our next episodes? We're planning to roll these out every two weeks, so twice a month. You can email podcast at HughesMarino.com if you have any feedback. And we will be back in about two weeks with the next episode. Thanks so much for listening.